welcome back to Word and Table, a bi-weekly podcast on liturgy, sacraments, and the great tradition of Christian worship and why it is vital in our world today. I'm your host, Alex Wilgus, and I am here, as usual, with Father Stephen Gauthier. Welcome back, Father Stephen. Good to be back, Alex. Stephen Gauthier is the canon theologian of the Diocese of the Upper Midwest in the Anglican Church in North America, and he is Director of Formation at St. Paul's House of Formation in the Greenhouse Movement. Today, Father Stephen, I wanted to follow up on a previous episode that we'd done on Christ in the Old Testament, seeing where Christ shows up in types and prophecies uh, in the Old Testament in general. But I wanted to zoom in on the book of Genesis, um, probably one of the most fascinating books in the Old Testament. Oh, certainly. <laughs> so many words spilled on it. Um, but yeah, where, again, rem- when Jesus tells the disciples on the road to Emmaus, he interprets all things concerning himself. What might concern him in the book of Genesis? Well, a lot of things in the book of Genesis. Let's start right in the very first verses. Remember, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. So what the church loved about this was they're saying the very first verses in the Bible have the Trinity. It's the first revelation of the Trinity. Because we have, first of all, God referring to the Father. He's the creator of heaven and earth. God created the heaven and the earth. We talk about the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters. Where's Christ? Well, he's the eternal word of God. Remember, John's gospel sort of mimics Genesis, right? It brings us back by saying, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. You know, all things were created through him. Without him was created nothing that was created. So he said, and God said, let there be light. So we have Father, God created the heavens and the earth, the Holy Spirit hovering over the face of the waters, and the Spirit, uh, rather, and then we have God said. It's interesting that every single day of creation, in the first creation account in chapter 1 of Genesis, Things are created by speech. You know, God said, let there be light. God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. It goes every one of the six days of creation. And the, this is the basis why, why the New Testament authors took it as a given that everything was created through Christ. They say that, but you say, well, why do they say that? They just assume this, right? Uh, for example, John says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not any, made anything that was made. Well, he's referring to the fact that it was always the Word that created things. God said, let there be light. God yeah. said. Uh, yeah. Corinthians, First Corinthians says, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. And it goes as Colossians, Hebrews. It's a constant theme. It's everything. Because God created through his word, and the word is Christ, everything's created through Christ. Yeah, and we've talked more before, right, about how when we speak, it's merely a descriptive thing. Yes. But when God speaks, God's word does what it says. Yeah, we call right. it an effective word. Right. It actually does what it says. You know, I could say, let me be tall, and nothing's going to happen. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, you know, God says, let there be light, there's light. When Jesus says for a spirit to go out, the spirit's cast out. Yeah, he's a God, Christ is God's effective word. He brings to not he brings rather to to life things that were not. He you know that's the idea. Also, it's interesting the Holy Spirit participates in creation. Uh, in the Book of Psalms, it says, "By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of His mouth all their hosts." The breath, the Holy Spirit. Breath in Hebrew and Greek is the same word as spirit. And the neat thing here is, as we know with foreign languages, right, or any language, you can't, you must have breath to speak. 
right? The breath is breath crossing the vocal cords, right? And then yeah. we, our mouth articulates it is speech. So you can't speak without, so there can be no word without the spirit. Mm. And so that's why Irenaeus, one of the early church fathers, said the word and the spirit are the two hands of God at creation. Uh, okay. That's Irenaeus. So, so that's what that means when we say that the spirit proceeds from the father and the son. Um, they go together. Right, the, right, the, the, uh, the, right, the, right they, go, they go together. Christ's action, again, we said when we studied the Trinity, we talked about the Trinity, is they have a common operation. You know, God always does whatever God does, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but how each operates, they operate together. Like, again, like your breath and your speech, right? They're, they're related. One, one, we require the other, right? You can't have speech without breath. Mm-hmm. Another thing you'd have right there at the creation, remember the, in the second creation account, we have the creation of Eve. She's taken out of the side of Adam. And we've talked about that, I think, in a different context. But remember, it says, it talks about a deep sleep came upon Adam. And it says the Lord took the rib from Adam's side and made a woman and brought her to the man. And that woman was the mother of all those who were born afterwards, you know, the mother of all the living. And the church has always saw this as a, as a, as a foreshadowing of the birth of the church at the cross hmm. because Christ yeah. is in the deep sleep, the sleep of death. Remember, sleep is the image of death. Yeah. Like Lazarus. Lazarus has fallen asleep. They say, oh, that means he must be getting better. No, he's dead. <laughs> <laughs> so Christ falls into a deep sleep, the sleep of death. And from his side, remember that wonderful passage in John, water and blood come from his side. That's a symbol of the church, water of baptism, the blood of Eucharist. But the church is taken from his side. And so the church, just as all who are born, you know, Eve is the, the father said, Eve is the mother of all who are born. The church is the mother of all who are born again. Uh, yeah, yeah. Oh. And also the fact that Mary is there. Mary isn't described as Mary. In John's gospel, she's described as simply the mother of Jesus because they're emphasizing her as a symbol of motherhood. Okay. So at the birth of the that's where he says, behold your mother. Your mother. Yeah. Or behold your child, saying, giving, you know, giving over to the church. Yeah, yeah. So we've the church saw the you know the birth the the birth of Eve taken from the side of Adam as a foreshadowing of the church taken from the side of Christ and becoming the mother of all who are born again. Mm-hmm. Remember, we talked once about Cyprian said you can't have God as your father and not have the church as your mother. Right, right, and and we talked also about the um, icon of Mary and all the Orthodox yes. churches of right. her hands out and the prayer position and Jesus kind of in a circle, out of her representing the church. In, in whom is Christ. Exactly right. You know, the bride of Christ taken from him, yeah. taken from his side. Uh, we all, the next thing we have in Genesis would be the first gospel, the Proto-Evangelion, and, uh, you know, let's say first gospel, and we're saying even at the worst moment, the curses after the fall is that there's, the Bible's always good news. We just have to look right there. What does he say? I will put enmity between you and the woman. Again, the woman, the image of the church. We have this image again in the book of Revelation. Remember the woman who flees. Yes has given birth who flees. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, that offspring's Christ. He shall bruise your head, speaking of the serpent. You shall bruise his heel. So yes, you're going to get him on the cross, but he will destroy you. Yeah, yeah. He will crush your head. You'll bruise his heel, but he'll crush your head. Hmm. So the, the first prophecies the church saw of Christ's victory at the moment of defeat after sin, saying this is going to be reversed. It's going to be, you know, her offspring. yeah is going to be the reversal. Then we have Abel. You know, going the next in the family family history here, Abel, of course, is the first victim of murder. 
uh, he's the innocent brother of his uh, victim of his brother um, uh, Cain. And the interesting thing there is that the New Testament applies this to Jesus because what we're told about Cain, remember Nabal, is when God comes to Adam, God comes to Adam, he said, Where, the, you know, um, where's your brother? He said, am I my brother's keeper? And he says, the blood of your brother is crying out to the ground for vengeance. Hmm. And in Hebrews, we're told that Christ is the same way. His blood is a cry for action. Huh. Well, Christ's blood also, an innocent man murdered by his brothers, right? He's yeah. not ashamed to call us brothers, it says in Hebrews. Is his blood cries out, but for mercy. That's why the line of a wonderful line in Hebrews, it says, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Hmm. So the two supreme innocent victims, Abel's blood says, vengeance, justice. Yeah. Christ's blood cries out, mercy, Yeah. a better word. Yeah, uh, I, I completely forgot about that verse in Hebrews. You know, it's funny, when we're talking about where to find Christ in the Old Testament and where might he possibly show up, it's really helpful to look at the, the New Testament, right? Exactly. <laughs> That's, it's, it's, it's right there. So, right, exactly. Yeah, you enter into the Old through the New in that way. So Exactly. Yeah. Another one we have would be uh, Noah and the Flood. A lot of things about Noah and the Flood. First of all, sometimes we miss the fact that Noah himself is a type of Christ. And there's a verse that a lot of people have forgotten. It says, remember the curse on the ground was say, in pain, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat it. Mm -hmm. That's Genesis 3.17. When it introduces Noah in Genesis, it's very interesting how it introduces him. It says, of Noah's father, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. So he's saying somehow Noah will be the one who reverses the curse. Hmm. And so it's Christ in the wood of the cross over the waters of death. And since that's what an ark is a symbol of, the wood of the cross taking us over the, remember we said oceans are the symbol of death in the Old Testament. Yeah. You know, Christ in his cross actually takes us safely across the waters of death. Yes. to life. So Noah is actually himself as a type of Christ. And it's also a foreshadowing of new creation. Remember in the, in, in, um, in the Old Testament, we said at the, the first creation, we have the, the Spirit is hovering over the face of the waters. And what happens in, the, uh, you know, in Noah's incident? We have the, the, the dove is sent out. Mm -hmm. And it's said it just went over the waters, but it had to come back because there's no place to land. It just sort of hovered there and came back. Oh, right. Yeah. So it's showing it's a sign that something's going to happen. Yeah. Just as there was that, the spirit hovers before the first creation, the spirit's hovering over the new creation. It's a symbol of what's going to happen with Christ, the new Noah. Mm. Mm. Another thing, flood is, we're told, is a sign of our baptism. Uh, we're told that That's specifically right. in First Peter. We talked about that. Baptism, which corresponds to this, speaking of that, now, now saves, saves you. you right? yeah. And it's the idea that the, the wood of the cross, you know, take us across the waters of death, mm -hmm. you know, through the, safely to the other side. But something I, I most like personally in the story is the three flights of the dove. A lot of people, if you're not paying attention, the, the dove goes out three separate times. The first time, as we said, is a renewal of the creation, pre-creation. Right, hovering over the, over the water. The second time he goes out, he comes back, but he has something. He, he comes back, but he comes back with what? He has a sprig of olive, you know, from an olive tree. Why is this important? The number one thing people thought of with olives in the ancient world was oil. Remember, we talked about that, I believe, in one of our episodes. We talked about oil was really much more important than this for us. It was used as how you administer medicines. Medicines were mixed in oil. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, that's why you, you know, we talk about anointing people with oil when they're sick. It means you put the medicine in the oil, and the oil is what you used to. Yeah. It was basically a delivery mechanism. Uh-huh. It's also used for perfumes. You put the, something that smells good in oil, so it stays. You know, that's how you do it. And it was also used to, to, for athletes as a liniment. Mm. You know, so also separate strengthening. Yeah. So those three meanings. So it was especially, the, but the anointing is the promise of anointing. And Jesus is that, uh, no, you know, he has nowhere to land now. But there's a promise somehow out there. There's something to do with anointing. We would say as Christians, the anointed one. Then there's the third flight of the dove, this I call the longest flight in history. <laughs> because the dove, it says, doesn't come back because it meant the waters must be going down over the earth. So we ask ourselves, well, where'd he go? Yeah. Well, figuratively speaking, uh, what happens is uh, if you look uh, at you know, the, um, the accounts of Jesus' um, uh, b- um, baptism, Mm-hmm. What does it say about the dove? Something we look at those pictures, we say, well, he's sort of hovering up there in the air over Jesus. Well, actually what it says, for example, in Matthew's gospel, it says that when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest upon him. Hmm. John says, and God, John bore witness, John's gospel says, I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. So in a way we could think of it this way. Why did the dove not come back? He had nowhere he could land. The whole world was covered by sin and death. Yeah. When Jesus becomes a human being, the first sinless human being, suddenly this is the place for the Holy Spirit to land. Okay, yeah, yeah. This is the beginning. It means this, this flood has started to go down. The first sign in the Noah's flood was he goes off. It means there must be a place to land. There must be hope. The waters are going down. Yeah. It's the beginning of the end. Yeah, yeah. Or the end of the beginning, right? And and Jesus has just emerged from the waters. Jesus is right. And yeah. saying suddenly, wait a second. Yeah, the yeah. dove, you know, it's like a symbol again, just as you know, coming out of these waters. It suddenly he's like that first pill saying, "This is the hope. The waters of sin are going down. Instead of covering the whole earth, yeah, suddenly they're going down. Yeah, yeah. In Christ's baptism, it's as though that that yeah, that you know, figuratively speaking, that that dove that Noah releases, you know, even after the flood waters go down, the flood of sin is still not yeah receded until Christ. In that way, it's a yeah. type of you know, uh, the creation is restored with Noah, but the deeper problem of sin. It's still there. It's yeah. still there. All of us are, you know, they're universal. All are covered by sin. All have sinned. All has fallen short, hmm. we're told, right? Paul reminds us that in Romans. Yeah. But how does this end? You know, what brings down those waters that cover everything? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Another thing, remember, the Tower of Babel is actually uh, sort of a, a prefiguration in reverse of what happens at Pentecost. Right, Because right. think about it, In Babel, we have the people could understand you thought they could no longer they can no longer understand each other and the result is they disperse instead of staying together they just go out everywhere yeah go yeah. off on their own and they abandon the city the city they're building is abandoned at pentecost what happens people are brought together from all over the earth the jews from every nation under heaven and they can understand instead of language being a divider it's a uniter the apostle would speak and how i would read the text alex is that wasn't they were speaking all these languages. They spoke one language, what amazed people about the miracle. There's nothing miraculous in the ancient world about people being able to speak other languages. Mm-hmm. I think it's probably the fact that, wait a second, that one dude up there is speaking, and all of us can hear him in our native language, but we all speak different native languages. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. That's the miracle, is that, you know, suddenly there's no division. You know, they, we hear them. We all, it says we hear them all speaking in our native language. Yeah, there's, there's unity in a diversity of languages. And they stay in the city. Right. That's yeah. what we talk about the church. The unified, they're, they're baptized, they stay together, they eat together, they break bread together, they, the apostles teaching. So it's sort of reverse babel. Right, right. It's a gathering rather than a scattering. Yeah. And then we talked about another, in, there's so much in Genesis, Melchizedek. 
right? We a whole episode on Melchizedek. Uh, in Hebrews, right? Yeah. It's a main theme. In, in, uh, one of the main themes is, is it, the type of Christ is Christ as high priest. But a very quick rehearsal of that is to remember the, he's saying, well, it's easy. We can read everything in the Bible with Melchizedek in less than 20 seconds. Yeah. <laughs> there are all of five verses dedicated to him. Uh, the, the ones in Genesis simply say, after his return, speaking of Abraham, from the defeat of uh, Jedalomer and the kings who were with him, the mm-hmm. king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava, that is King's Valley, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, he has a blessing, blessed be Abraham by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. That's the entire scriptural account <laughs> of Melchizedek. Now, the things that were interesting there, and then we, Psalm 110 says, you will priest forever right. after the order of Melchizedek. Though that's the entire reference mm-hmm. in the Old Testament. So Hebrews tells us what that means is this is a type of Christ because, first of all, he's described as, you know, Melchizedek means king of righteousness. That's what the name means in Hebrew. Salem, he says he's king of Salem. Well, Salem is peace in Hebrew, so king of yeah. peace. He's king of righteousness, king of peace. And he makes this deal which is neat. It says in Hebrews, he had neither beginning of days nor end of life. Resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. What he's mean by this is normally what happens as a priest, what stops your career? You die. Yeah. And also, remember the big thing in the Old Testament is in all traditional societies, you are your family. Yeah. But Melchizedek, we don't get any context for the guy. No. <laughs> You're from Texas. When I, I, my wife is from Tennessee. When I first met her grandmother, who was the matriarch of the family, her first question to me literally is, where are your people from? <laughs> where do your people come from? Yeah. You're, you come from a family. And so in the Old Testament, we're constantly finding, sometimes we find it sort of strange that we're getting all this information, whose father was who. Mm-hmm. But that was really important to traditional people because who you are depends on where you're coming from. Sure. Melchizedek, we're never told where he comes from. He comes out of the blue. And also we're told, we end the story, we get him off stage by saying, well, he was gathered to his father. He's buried, dies mm-hmm. and get buried. Melchizedek comes on with no introduction. We never told where he comes from and disappears with, never disappears. He just goes off, we never hear from him again. Mm. And he says, sort of, that's a type of Christ. You know, the, the Levitical kings, we know where they come from. They're all descended from Levi mm-hmm. and the priests are from Aaron within the tribe of Levi. And we know when they die and then they're replaced by new priests. But this guy, you know, we're talking about Melchizedek, is like Christ. He had no beginning. The reason we don't have a genealogy, he has no beginning. He's been forever, and he never ends. So he's so his priesthood is forever. It's been there's, there's always his priesthood. And then we he t- well we we talked other some of these other things here. And bread and wine is interesting. What does he bring out? He brings out bread and wine. Yeah, yeah. You know, it says and then immediately fall back. He was a priest of God Most High. He makes the connection. Bread and wine means he's a priest. That's why he's bringing it out. And so the, with the Eucharist. Right. In a lot of medieval church windows, you'll see Abraham and Isaac on one side, and you'll see Melchizedek on the other. Really? Of a cross. Really? Yeah, bread and wine, that's very evocative, actually. Yeah. But we talk more about uh, Melchizedek. Mm-hmm. Uh, something, I love the three angelic visitors at Mamre. Mm, the one in the, I love that story. The one in the icon. The, the one in the icon we yeah. talked about, right. And what's interesting in this account in Genesis 18, 1 through 10, if you look at it, is they mix the singular and the plural. To introduce it, it says, the Lord appeared. That's singular. The Lord appeared. And it says of Abraham, though, he looked up and behold, held three men. Now, how does Abraham address the three men he sees? O Lord, if not O Lord, my lords, O Lord. Later on, it says, they said, they said. And then it says the third time, the Lord said. 
So it goes back and forth between singulars and plurals. And the key thing, this is the Old Testament trinity. They saw this as, uh, is like at the creation, is what we're really seeing is the manifestation to Abraham as God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this is why it's, we said it had a special role in iconography, because it's actually a place where we did see God then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so this is the, the quintessential image of the trinity in the Orthodox Church. The binding of Isaac is, I think, my favorite image in the book of Genesis. We traditionally read it on Good Friday. Uh, they don't call it, we often call it sacrifice of Isaac, but Jews would never call it that because Isaac is not sacrificed. Right, yeah. I, he's bound. He's called the binding We of do Isaac. call it that. Yeah. No, it's the binding. He's not sacrificed. That's the important part of the story. Now, notice some things here with this account. This account is so... Uh, it says, take your son, your only son, whom you love. And it's talking about going to the land of Moriah. It says, on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. It says that Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. Isaac actually carries the wood. They went together. And then it says that when he says, what are we going to sacrifice? He says, God will provide. So here's the, the um, and then we have the God saying, now I know because you haven't withheld your son from me. I know this is real. So the first thing is Isaac, you know, he's, we say, why is he the only son? Because what about Ishmael? Is we said that it's a technical category. It means the heir. Yeah. The son who's heir. And notice it's not accidental that Christ's baptism, how is he described? This is the son I love. Hmm. Just say, which son? The son you love. That's what he said. This is my son. We're already setting it up for an Abraham moment. This is not just, quote, a son. This is my son, the one I love. My only son, the one I love. Hmm. Then we have, the Greek is really obvious about this, the word uh, used here in the Greek, Greek translation of the Old Testament and here. Uh, another thing is Moriah. What some of our listeners might not know is that Moriah was ultimately the site of the temple. And we say, how do we know that? And remember, Jesus describes his body as his temple in John 2.21. Is remember when we have that part in the Old Testament in Chronicles, where uh, First Chronicles, where David takes a census he's not supposed to take. Mm-hmm. And we have a plague breaks out. And the angel of death is stopped on the threshing floor. Remember, he builds an altar and, the, you know, and offers a sacrifice, and the angel of death stops at that point. And we're uh, told, specifically in Second Chronicles, then Solomon began to build the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father David. It was on the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite, the place provided by David. So you see that beautiful image of, you know, that's the place where sacrifice stopped death. The angel of death was stopped in his tracks. Yeah. By a sacrifice. So the same site will be where the temple is. And the temple, of course, Jesus describes his own body as the temple. Mm. Isaac will be restored to his father in three days. He actually carries the wood like Jesus carries the cross. He carries Mm. the wood for the sacrifice. And also he walks with Isaac. This is important. A lot of readers, uh, or I say readers, a lot of our listeners probably don't know that in rabbinic tradition, we have this idea of Isaac being a little kid. Right, yeah. Isaac was about 30 years old. <laughs> so Isaac was a little kid, and frankly, Abraham was a lot older than I am. Yeah. And I'm old. <laughs> and so I'm here to tell you that, as the rabbis point out, Isaac could have easily taken him out. Sure. <laughs> There's no way that Abraham could have subdued Isaac and yeah. bound him. So the point is the voluntary nature. The father is obedient, but so is the son. Mm-hmm. So the idea of this is joint. Like, says, God so loved the world, he gave his only son. And Jesus gives himself. He says, no one takes my life, I give it freely. Right. So we have that, that combination of those two things. Got it. The father and the son are both making a self-offering. Yeah, yeah. The father gives his son, and the uh, son gives himself. 
And then the promise that God will provide the lamb, which is, of course, the reference to, to Christ. Mm-hmm. You know, and Isaac is bound to the wood of the sacrifice, like Christ is, you know, nailed to the cross. Yeah. And the beautiful thing is why it's a type is why we say it's the binding of Isaac. Isaac isn't actually sacrificed. God wouldn't ask that much. He would ask, but he would never go that far. No angel is going to spare his son. Right. God will give what he couldn't ask someone else to do. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's a beautiful thing. God will go the extra step. Then we, of course, have another thing would be the covenant with Abraham. And there were three elements of that covenant. You know, one element of the covenant was land. You know, right. you'll, you'll have your land. You'll be a father. First of all, the first promise is you'll be a father of a great nation, then a multitude of nations. And but through you, the, the nations of the earth, um, uh, you know, uh, will be blessed. So we, so we have offspring, land, and a blessing to the nations. Mm. You will be the father of a great nation. Actually, the father of multitude, that's what becomes Abraham instead of Abram. Abraham is a play in words in Hebrew because Am is the word for people. The father of nations, okay. Land, you'll have a land and you'll be a blessing to the nations. In your, It says literally, in your seed, offspring, all the nations will be blessed. Now, the offspring, uh, of course, was Israel itself, but he also comes with a multitude of nations. Yeah. You know, it's like the British Commonwealth, think of it that way. Now, what's really neat about this, he truly is the father of many nations because, as Paul points out, he's the father of all who believe in a very real reason. Hmm. All who believe share the faith of Abraham, who is the father of all believers. Yeah. So he will be a father of all because all who share his faith are truly children of Abraham. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's how he that prophecy will be fulfilled as far as Christians are. The land, he said, was Canaan, but he said, you know, it can't be that. And the author of Hebrews tells us, wait a second, Abraham never got the land, did he? All he owned was a burial plot. Right. It showed that there was something more than that. They emphasized that in Hebrews. There had to be more than that because Abraham never got it and God keeps his promises. No, Abraham was after a heavenly city. Mm. That's the city we're going to. Yeah. And we have the blessing to the nations is this is in in you shall in your seed shall all the nations be blessed. Right, right. They play on this that this singular seed not be in your offspring, not plural but singular in one particular offspring. Jesus, yeah. will all the nations be yeah. blessed. He chosen seed of Israel's race. Yeah. Yes. Because in English, we do the same thing with offspring. Because I could say, if I had one child, I could say he's my offspring. If I had 30, I could say he's my offspring. They're right. my offspring, right? Where your offspring can be singular or plural. Right. And so they normally thought of it as plural through your various offspring. So through what, it, Peter plays on that in his sermon. In, right. in one of his sermons, Acts is saying, no, through this offspring, Jesus, yeah. this yeah. is the one. This seed shall all the nations be blessed. Nothing but it was Jacob's ladder. Mm. And we might say, how is this uh, with Christ? Well, notice what he does. He does something strange. It says, so early in the morning, Jacob took the stone. Remember, after this vision of the, 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 the ladder going up to heaven, the stairway going up to yeah, heaven, yeah. Jacob's ladder. Is it says he took the stone. He'd been sleeping. That was his pillow and the stone. And he set it up for a pillar, and he poured oil on top of it. So oil, anointing, the anointed one, the Messiah. And it says, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Remember, this is what we, uh, Jesus says to Nathaniel. Remember John's gospel. When he, comes, you know, he says, truly, I truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens open, the angels of God ascending and descending, descending and on descending. the Son of Man, uh, the anointed one. 
Wow. So it's sort of a thing. There's going to be a time we have this connection between heaven and earth. Mm. Mm. That's why he says, this is awesome, this place. In the ancient world, a lot of regular people thought that there were certain, it's like good, good uh, radio reception. There are certain places that just got better reception. Uh-huh. For example, in the, in the Near East to this day, uh, where the word Bob is Arabic for gate. Mm-hmm. But often it was used figuratively of places that were just holy places because they had reputations you could you could get in contact with the gods there. Yeah, yeah. It was just yeah, a good place, good reception. Here. A portal yeah. there, like a portal. Uh-huh. And so it's, he's almost making that kind of comparison. This is like one of those portals he's right here. This is the house. This is the gate of heaven. Yeah. You know, heaven, this is where we connect. And that Christ is that perfect that's, gate. Yeah. And Jesus picks up that same image. And again, the promise, he pours out the oil on it. This is the temple, the house of God. Mm-hmm. This is the gate of heaven. Christ says, you'll see this. Yeah. Joseph is a type of Christ. There are a lot of similarities with Joseph in the story. Yeah, it's real uh, similar to to Abel in a way, yep. isn't it? Yeah, killed by his brother, or quote-unquote killed by his brothers, um, you know. But yeah, yeah handed over. He's handed over by handed his over. brothers. Yeah. At least he's lucky that the Ishmaelites were better than, uh, <laughs> yeah. than the Romans. <laughs> There's the prophecy that this would happen. He's rejected by his own. He's sold to the Gentiles, handed over for money. Unintended result, uh, he saves his brothers and the world. That's the thing they loved. Right. The he said, you know, you meant it for evil. God meant it for good. Mm-hmm. He said that you'd save a multitude of nations to be saved. Yeah. So it's not just them. It was, you know, a multitude of nations to be saved because mm-hmm. of their sin, ironically, we turned around. And also his mission specifically begins at age 30. We're told in Luke's gospel, hmm. Jesus was 30 years old when he's baptized, yeah. the beginning of his mission. Yeah. And we're told the same thing we're told of Joseph. He was 30 years old when he was lifted up in Pharaoh's court. Hmm. Hmm. He's also a beloved son. Beloved son, yeah. yes. He's yeah. the one, the one he loves. He has other brothers, but he's the beloved son. Yeah. And finally, the scepter of Judah prophecy. It says in Genesis 49.10, getting right to the end of the 50 chapters in Genesis, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. What the church especially liked is the Greek version said, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until it comes to whom it belongs. You're saying the, you know, the, the ultimate one is Christ. Mm-hmm. Wow, okay. Yeah. So those are some of the things that traditionally, uh, some of the images and things we see of Christ and the Trinity in the, in the book of Genesis that the church has cherished. Yeah, yeah. And there's something really special about these two because, the, you know, Genesis is, is the beginning. Yes. You know, to have such a rich sort of tapestry of reference to Christ right there at the beginning um, really sets the tone for what comes in the middle, the whole Bible, right? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And of course, the point is, we talked about you know, you know, basically the the Old Testament. He says it says uh, hides what the New Testament reveals. Hides not in the sense of uh, we often the word hide has two meanings in English. Hide can mean deliberately. I'm, God wasn't trying to hide something, but we would say something. Wait, I can't see the sign. The tree's hiding it. Mm-hmm. The tree is not trying to keep us from being this tree. Is not trying to do anything. It's just being a tree. Yeah. But the practical effect is we can't see it. Yeah. And so, so the, New Te- the Old Testament has these contained in a form that we can't quite see. But once we know, then we see it everywhere. Hmm. And uh, this is one of the beautiful things where Paul says, you know, they read the same scriptures we do every Sabbath. But it, he says, until you turn to the Lord, it's like there's a veil. When hmm. you turn to the Lord, the veil's removed. Yeah. yeah. Well, great. Is there anything else you'd you'd 
tell us about about Christ and Genesis? Do you think that about covers it? I think that's a lot I could say, yeah, but uh, we're <laughs> starting because we, we, we get into, um, I hope we'll do an episode that we'll talk about other places in the in the Torah, especially the book of Exodus, mm-hmm. uh, book of Numbers, Deuteronomy. We have a lot of other beloved references to Christ, and some that might be a surprise for some of our listeners. Sure. Uh, they say, oh, wow, that's so true. Yeah, boy, and that's that's before even getting into the prophets. So. Yes. <laughs> Well, great. Well, thanks, Father Stephen, and thank you for listening to Word and Table. Um, We'll be back in a couple of weeks for more on liturgy, sacrament, and the great tradition of Christian worship. Thanks for listening.